Right now, my son James, who's a year and a half, is learning the important yet subtle art form of hanging out. Yes, it's a thing that men have been mastering now for centuries. The art of being together, even if you're not necessarily talking. Normally on Fridays, which is my, my day off, uh, my, Laura takes Miles off to school, then she gets some alone time that morning. And, and James and I tend to hang out, which normally constitutes me sitting on the couch, trying to stay awake, fiddling on my phone, which I shouldn't be, reading a book, which I shouldn't be. And then James goes about his to-do list, you know, his baby to-do list. He gets some action figures and bangs them together because he's a second born. So, you know, you kind of early adopter with action figures, uh, you know, plays with the garbage truck. But then every two to three minutes, he circles back to me and he picks one of three books. Um, and normally they're pictures with words attached to them. And he has me read about the first four to five pages of said book until he loses interest goes back to his, you know, baby to-do list until inevitably two to three minutes later, he starts to get curious yet again about that book. And for the 50th time, we read it halfway together. And, you know, I don't think that it's necessarily a love for books that makes my son circle back over and over again in that way. I think it's the question of, Dad, are you here, Right? It's not enough to just be hanging out. He wants to know that there's an intentionality in spending time together. Are you actually available to me? Will you actually break with what you're doing to spend uninterrupted time with me? And children all want this in their lives. They wanna know that you're actually available to them, that you can actually be near to them in a significant way. And in many ways, we never grow out of that. All of our lives, we are looking for people to be near to. People that we question, do you actually wanna be with me? Not just next to me, but actually with me. And some of the greatest pains in our lives are when people that we used to be with, people that we used to be near aren't with us anymore. A friendship dissolves because someone gets preoccupied in, in work or their hobbies or whatever it might be. And they're not with us anymore. Uh, the pain of divorce that many of us have felt with our parents fracturing our families. We can no longer be with mom and dad at the same time. Or many of us feel it in Littleton where it feels like people move every two to three years out of this city. And you say, oh man, I just invested so many years of deep relationship with this person and now they're gone. Or the pain of death even more so. Someone that knows you more than you know yourself is now no longer with you. Or to put it positively, the great joys that we have at a reunion where someone that you are deeply formed by, maybe it was someone you went to school with or someone you served in the military with or a neighbor that has moved away and yet has come back, that deep joy that you feel is because of somebody that knows you more than you know you, somebody that is so near to your heart is actually with you physically. We all long to be with those that we love and with those that we are loved by. And that doesn't ever leave the human heart. And, you know, I think God made us this way because he made us in his image. Our God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the perfect God of triune life, has made us to be creatures of communion, creatures of relationality. We are creatures that find our being, our selfhood, in our relations with others. And most of all, we find our being, our selfhood, 
in our relationship with God. And so today as we continue in our series through the practices of the beloved, the practices of discipleship, today I want to talk about the practice of nearness, the practice of growing closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's something I think all of us desperately want, and yet all of us struggle with, especially when the trials of life come our way. So first I want to look at a theology of nearness. It wouldn't be Trinity Anglican if we didn't start with theology. But then I want to look at concrete practices, things that we can do that actually foster nearness to God. And I want to look at three things in particular when we get to that section. First, a life of holiness. A life of holiness. Because if we want to be attentive to our God, we actually have to listen to his word instead of the word of the flesh. So often we tune out God as we tune up the world, our desires and our sin. And then we wonder why he doesn't feel near to us. If you want to actually be near to God, be near to his word. Second, we'll look at the necessity of, of loving the least, the last, and the forgotten. As Jesus said in our gospel reading today, Jesus meets us in the stranger, in the poor, in the sick, in the prisoner. That one of the primary ways that we can meet Jesus in his caring for the least, the last, and the forgotten. And then finally, I want to look at the role of the church, that we get to meet Jesus in one another. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew 28, 16 through 20, this passage that's so often all about mission, and it is all about mission, but I want to look at it from a slightly different angle. This is where Jesus is sending out his disciples into the world, the 11 at this point, because obviously Judas is no longer with them, um, and they're going to go reach the world with the gospel. But look at what Jesus says right at the end. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now I've said this before, but the Christian tradition has said that all 11 get martyred. Now, we don't know that from the biblical witness. We know that James was. Uh, we know that Stephen, who was the first deacon, was. There's very strong evidence that Jesus predicts the torturous death of Peter, but we don't know for sure. But the Christian, Christian tradition has said, basically, these guys were cast out into the world to spread the gospel. They were incredibly successful in this missional journey, but in their personal lives, it didn't go so great. They were rejected, they were despised, they were killed. And we also know that in AD 64, this is within all, most of their lifetime, Rome actually instituted a state-backed uh, persecution of the church. So most of them, by the time they were still alive, faced state-level opposition. And not only that, but we know they went to the furthest reaches of the world. Well, we think they did. Uh, even Thomas Doubting Thomas went all the way to India. That's at least what the tradition says. Now, why am I saying all that? The disciples, these 11 people, would at some point almost surely ask, if they were human and they were human, God, are you still with me? God, are you here amidst this mission? Have I made a wrong turn? 
Was I supposed to go left and I went right? Was I supposed to go, you know, to Pakistan and I went to India instead, right? So often in our lives, that's the question that we ask. God, if I don't feel near to you, surely I must have gone in the wrong direction. And surely the disciples must have felt that when they were sent out to the furthest reaches of the world. So what does Jesus do? The last word he gives them, the last thing that he says to them before he ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father is behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is never a point in which I'm not with you. There's a never a point in which I've forgotten you. There's never a point in which my back has turned from you. I am with you. And these are the words that every human heart longs to hear. These are the words that every human heart especially wants to hear in times of great trial and hardship. You know, because at the end of the day, God made us to be calibrated relationally, right? To have our emotions established through relationships with others. A baby cries and a mother comforts. A young child, you know, gets wound up and parents bring calm, right? And even in our adulthood, when we're facing something incredibly difficult, what do we need? We need somebody there with us when we're suffering. But not only that, we also want people there with us when we're in joy. Have you ever noticed that, right? It's why your friends tell you long stories about the baby, right? And you're like, uh-huh, it's a baby, right? It's a baby. Um, that's what babies do. But you're like, oh, man, he hiccuped. You know, oh, yeah, he did hiccup. That's cool. And, but what do you want? Why do you do that? Why do all parents do that, right? It's a timeless practice of parents. Because you want other people to share the joy that you have in your baby, right? Joy is meant to be shared too. Joy is meant to be relational as well. You want your friends with you on your child's baptism day. You want your friends with you on your wedding day. You want your friends with you when you celebrate some special occasion. We want to be with others in grief and in joy, and I think this is you know, a profoundly biblical reality because when we look at this relational nature of what it means to be a human, it's interesting. Do you know what the first not is in the Bible? The first not, the first no. It is not good for man to be alone. God gives everything. He's like, it's great, it's perfect, it's the best. And then he looks at lonely Adam and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so what does he give him? He gives him... Eve, as a partner, as a gift, as they are able to be together in nearness and communion with each other. And this theme carries all throughout scripture because the main reality of nearness that we're all longing for is nearness with God. The great gift of the Garden of Eden is that God dwelt with Adam and Eve. And even when we fell into sin and were cast out from the presence of God, God came and sought us out by being near to Israel in the temple by being near to us with Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. It's in his name. Not only that, but you know what the name, the Holy Spirit, parakletos, right? The paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Do you know what that name means? Kaleo, which is kind of the kletos part. Kaleo means to call forth like a lawyer who is an advocate, okay? That's why the word is called, you know, his our advocate, uh, or he's our comfort. Um, 
he's a lawyer for us. He's our advocate who speaks on our behalf to God. So, you know, if, if you're a lawyer here, I know there's a number of you. I know that's always negative lawyer jokes. Well, the Holy Spirit is called a lawyer, okay? So just, just, just remind people of that for a second. But the other word, para, means nearby, close by, right beside. The Holy Spirit is the lawyer who argues your case right with you and never leaves you. It's in his name. It's in the name of Jesus, Emmanuel. It's in the name of the Holy Spirit, Parakletos, God with us. And then we see in Revelation 21, right? The new heavens and the new earth. So often we get preoccupied with the newness of the new heavens and the new earth, right? There's gonna be no sickness, no illness. It's gonna be incredible, right? But the greatest gift of the new heavens and the new earth is the nearness of God. Revelation 21, 3 says, behold, God's dwelling place is with humanity. It's the reestablishment and betterment of the garden. From beginning to end, the question of the Bible is, how can humanity be near God? And the answer is only if God chooses to draw near to us. The longing of every human heart, whether they know it or not, is to be next to the one, near the one who loves them unconditionally. That's why a baby wants to look in his mom's face and just receive a smile. To be near the one who can comfort them in grief. That's why when you, know, you cry, you need someone with you. And the greatest grief is to cry alone. It's, it's the desire to be with one who can control things, right? That's why when a child hurts themselves, they run to their parent. Why? Bring some control and stability in this. And we never grow out of these desires. Someone to unconditionally love us, someone to comfort us in our grief, and someone that we know is actually in control because the human heart longs to be with the one who truly unconditionally loves us as the father looks upon you as his very child. To be with the one who can comfort you in your grief is the Holy Spirit is not only your advocate, but also your comforter. And the one who's actually in control of all things as Jesus Christ sits upon his throne and rules and reigns. The longing of the human heart is to be with God. And the human heart will always be lonely. The human heart will always be slightly uncalibrated until we enter into the presence of our Lord, our Savior, our triune God. Now, it's one thing to say that. What are the practices that actually help us grow in this way? What are actually the practices that God has given his people to say, here's how you can come into my presence. Here's, actually, that's not the right way to put it. Here's how you can become aware of my presence. God is more near to you than you are to yourself, right? The church doesn't call God to come to us. God calls the church to come to him. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He is the one who's more near to you than you are to yourself. He is the one who's promised to never leave you nor forsake you. And yet so often we are oblivious to how near he is to us. It's not the question of whether or not he's here. It's the question of whether or not you're communing with the one who is here. So what are some practices? Well, the first one I wanna look at is that one I talked about earlier, which is holiness. Well, let me read a passage. Romans 8, 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. We know something. 
ones that we actually want to be near to and be attentive to and be in relationship with are ones that we actually pay attention to. You know, this is the problem of our cell phones, right? This is why, you know, the great difficulty of our church and the great gift of our church is how many children we have, right? Because the adults are like, I'm dying and I'm drowning and I need discipleship relationships. And therefore, moms especially, I need to be attentive to other people, which means I need this screaming child away from me if only for a moment, right? That's what it is, you know? Other times it's like, yeah, I need to be away from my cell phone so I can be attentive to you. I need to be less distracted with my career so I can be attentive to you. And what do we know about our lives and our attentiveness to God? The things of the flesh, whether that's our aspirations in this world that are disordered, not all aspirations are things of the flesh. Some aspirations are true gifts that God has given you, but our disordered aspirations, our sinful desires, what do they do? They pull our minds from God. They drown our ears out with this perpetual white noise that we can't quite turn off and is always there. And then we wonder why we can't hear God's voice. Now, not always. Sometimes you might just be in a hard season. You might be in a season where God is leading you through a desert because he wants you to listen to his still quiet voice. Not every season God shouts. This isn't a prosperity gospel church, right? That's why the prosperity gospel is so harmful. It says, if you just do the right things, you'll hear God and he'll act. Not true. God is who God is. The way I think about it is like fly fishing. You know, you can cast the perfect cast with the perfect fly at the perfect time, but if a fish doesn't want to bite, it won't. So too, you can't make God talk to you, right? I'm not saying that is always the case that our sin drowns out the voice of God. But if you're honest with yourself and if I'm honest with myself, more often than not, why we can't hear God's voice is because we aren't living a life pursuing him, pursuing holiness, pursuing righteousness, pursuing a life where our mind is set upon him. Rather, our mind is just drowned out with the perpetual worries and thoughts of our world. You know, Jacques Philippe and so many others in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, they understand something. We are Protestants. We do not believe in monasticism. But here's what I often like. Kyle and I have talked about this. Often, you know, Henry Nouwen or Jacques Philippe, they'll kind of start with like a really harsh word of like, hey, if you really want to be close to God, it's actually going to cost you something. And it cost me a lot my whole life, right? And we understand it actually costs us our whole life too. Are there sins in your life habitual patterns in your life that are drowning out the voice of God. Every revival in every human heart and every revival in the church begins with a posture of repentance, of turning from that which is distracting us, leading us into sin and tuning out the voice of God and a turning to his presence. If you wanna be near God, you actually need to pursue a life of holiness and his strength. The second thing I want to point out is to love a neighbor, particularly the least, the last, and the forgotten. As some of you know, I'm writing my dissertation on John Calvin's theology of hospitality, if I ever get it done. Uh, I, I think my advisor's going to be here next week. I keep being like, I'm going to tell him I'm going to drop out. I'm never going to get this thing done. The church keeps growing. My time keeps getting shorter, and I keep getting dumber. So um, you combine all of those, <laughs> this ain't never going to happen. But uh, 
or at least for now. I'll, I'll announce it when I, if I drop out. But for now, I'm writing this thing. And I'm doing my historical chapter. And, you know, Calvin's whole doctrine of hospitality, it's not like, you know, whether or not you serve a dessert or anything. It's, it's, it's the care for the outsider. That's what hospitality is. And for Calvin, that was particularly care for Genevan exiles who were under persecution in France. And he was trying to, sorry, not Genevan, people he was trying to welcome into Geneva. So he was trying to use all of his authority in Geneva to say, hey, all my friends, all my countrymen, because he was a Frenchman actually, are being persecuted in France. We need to get them out of there because they're being persecuted for the name of Jesus. So let's welcome them into Geneva. Well, his theology of hospitality, my contention is, was most likely influenced by two main figures. And they were his greatest theological uh, forefathers, St. Augustine, who we all know is kind of the godfather of the Western church, but also a guy named John Chrysostom, who was part of the Eastern church. And Chrysostom was called, Chrysostom means golden-tongued because he was the greatest preacher of his age. He was a bishop of Constantinople, which was the seat of the Roman Empire at the time. And he would rail against the authorities that didn't care for the poor. And eventually he started questioning the empress particularly, and he got cast out and exiled and died. But much of his theology of hospitality centered around the love of the poor as a love of Jesus Christ. And he always, and so did Augustine, and so did, frankly, the whole history of the church, has always interpreted Matthew 25, 41 through 46, as a way of loving the poor because they have inherent dignity as human beings in the image of God, but also as a way that Christ uniquely chooses to meet us. He actually chooses uniquely to commune with us in our care of the least, the last, and the forgotten. Matthew 25 says it. It's, it's, it's a pretty harsh passage, actually. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What's Jesus saying here? The least, the last, the forgotten, the people with no social status. And that changes in different social times and in social environments. In fact, there's quite a bit of scholarly research. This is actually in part talking about children in the church. I've shared that with you before because they were considered barely human in ancient Israel, in the ancient Near East in general. Um, but the poor, the prisoner, the stranger, which that means somebody that's in a different cultural context than you. What is Jesus saying here? When you love them, you love me. When you see those that are far off and unloved and you choose to love them in my name, I am there with you. This isn't left-wing social agenda. This is Jesus Christ himself speaking. The Christian church has always had a care for the marginalized because they care for Jesus. And so my question, well, let me, let me first recalibrate this just for a second because I think we're in an interesting time and I'm at one minute. Um, 
interesting time. Aaron's going to tell me that for real. Um, we're in an interesting time in that, you know, evangelicals, we just can't think outside of this, like, politi- politics. Like, we just can't. I don't get it. I get it. So basically, right, you know, we have this whole movement of, you know, the boomers only cared about right-wing political agendas. Well, now we're going to be real Christians. And then you're like, that's suspiciously just left-wing political agendas for young people. It's like, have you ever like, bothered to actually think about that for a second? Here's, <sighs> caring for the poor is not a means of your self-actualization. Caring for the poor is not a way that you can rub it in other Christians' faces that you're a real Christian and they're not. Caring for the poor is not some response to your uncle that you don't like on, Christmas, on Thanksgiving as he talks about his social agenda that you don't agree with, okay? It's only gonna lead to your deconstruction and your burning out. It doesn't work. Caring for the poor, caring for those that can't give anything back to you, whether that's the poor in spirit. I know that many of you are counselors. Uh, Caring for teenagers in our city that are just ravaged by anxiety and depression and fear. Caring for refugees. Caring for people at Synergy Village. Caring for whoever the poor is to you. Someone who can't give you something back is a way that you can give up control of outcomes and simply do it as a way of loving someone and loving Jesus. Because here's what you're gonna find. Whenever you're trying to get something back, of like getting some outcome, I'm gonna help this person become a middle-class individual, right? I'm gonna help this person become a citizen. We're gonna become best friends, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't, you have to give that up because all it's gonna lead is to your burnout. What Jesus promises, and the only thing Jesus promises is when you love the marginalized, you love me and I'm there with you. That's why we love it's because people have inherent dignity as image bearers of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's a theological tradition really brought out by Calvin. Uh, it was not there before, but, uh, and not only that, but it's a way we can meet Jesus and show Jesus to them. My p- plea with you is one, to enter into some relationship with someone that can't give anything back to you and to simply love them as you love our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus promises in that relationship, I will be with you. Now, I don't know who that is for you. Maybe it's a single mom in your neighborhood. Maybe it's a struggling teenager in our city. Maybe it's a refugee. Maybe it's a person uh, who's cognitively struggling. Whoever it might be, love them as Jesus has loved you. And Jesus promises he'll be near you. Don't do it as a way of making a point. Do it as a way of drawing near to Jesus. Now, finally, finally, I wanna look at the communion of saints. Finally, I wanna look at the importance of the church of drawing near to Jesus. Ephesians 2, 17 through 22 said, and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
I'm choking up a little bit. I hope it's okay. I just saw Greta beaming ear to ear, being wheeled in to church today. And I thought, oh, it's a gift to be with my sister, to be with her with Jesus. We actually get to meet Jesus in one another when we're here, family. We get to meet Jesus in the preaching of the word. We get to meet Jesus in the table. And we get to meet Jesus in one another. My question for you is, do you actually see the other as the presence of Jesus to you? Do you see the other as the presence of Jesus to you when they're difficult, as well as when it's incredible joy? Do you see the other as the presence of Jesus to you that he chose to give to you? So often we say, this is a church I chose to go to. No, you didn't. It's a church Jesus brought you to. And he brought all these people to be here with you to show himself uniquely to you in this communion of saints. Even the crying babies in the back, moms. My prayer is that you would actually see the face of Jesus in one another. To see the face of Jesus in somebody that's, that's crying, to see the face of Jesus in someone that you've not yet talked to, to see the face of Jesus in every person that walks through this door. We actually get to commune with Jesus when we gather together as the people of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for gathering us today. Thank you that you are here. Thank you that you have drawn near to us. Lord, would we see your face as we pursue holiness? Lord, would we see your face as we love the marginalized? Lord, would we see your face as we see one another? Lord, would we see your face that always smiles upon us, the face that chose to take our death upon yourself, the face that loves us unconditionally? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.